you know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. On today's episode of 1050 Bascom, we are grateful to once again have the opportunity to talk to you Casey Lucchini Butcher, a public historian and award-winning museum curator who's the director of UW-Madison's Public History Project. Last summer, we talked with Casey about the re-emerging civil rights movement and about the mission of the project to acknowledge and recover the stories of those who experienced prejudice on the UW-Madison campus. Given the rise of anti-Asian sentiment in the U.S. over the last year, as well as an increase in violence against Asian Americans, we wanted to talk to Casey about the Public History Project's publication of two pieces that dig into the history of individual Asian American experiences at UW-Madison. The first is called The University of Wisconsin and Japanese American Students, 1941-1944, and the second is Japanese American Badgers. We've got so much to talk about today, so let's dive right in. Casey, thank you so much for taking the time to come on 1050 Bascom today. We really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. Yes, and speaking of which, last summer when you joined us for the podcast, we asked you for some background and history of the Public History Project. For our listeners who might not have heard that episode, could you just give us a quick overview of your work on campus and the goals of this project? Yeah, so the UW-Madison Public History Project rose out of a report that was released in 2018 that detailed the activities of two student groups on campus in the 1920s that bore the name of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, One of the findings of the report or one of the arguments of the report was we should continue this work. We should continue to look past just the histories of the Klan, but look also at the broader histories of racism and discrimination and resistance at the university. So that's what the Public History Project was created to do. Um, We aim to recover and acknowledge some of the most difficult histories on campus, our histories of racism and discrimination, and also highlight a lot of the voices of dissent and resistance on campus. Um, So all of this project will culminate in a physical exhibit in the fall of 2022, um, a digital exhibit website, curricular materials, a lot of event programming, and really just lots of opportunities for the campus community to reflect and to reckon on our broader campus history. Thank you so much for that kind of brief background. Uh, You know, it's good to have that. But then speaking of which, you know, unfortunately, since we've interviewed you last summer, the saliency of this kind of issue has only skyrocketed. You know, hate crimes against Asian Americans in 16 cities rose by 150% in 2020, according to a report from the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University. And there's been a lot of discussion about this rise since the beginning of the pandemic, but it really hit the public consciousness last month when eight Asian women in Atlanta were killed in a targeted shooting spree. Um, Can you talk and maybe give us your take on why we've seen such a dramatic uptick in anti-Asian sentiment and violence and maybe put this into a little bit of a historical perspective? 
Yeah, I think as historians, we're always kind of looking at the history, but I also, one of my big goals is to get other people to look at the history, because I think that so much of understanding the history of the United States will illuminate why we continue to see these issues resurfacing for us. Um, and there is a long history of anti-Asian prejudice and violence in this country. Um, and when you know that history, when you learn that history, it makes a lot of what go what's going on right now um, make more sense, or at least it's less surprising because this has all happened before. We've been here before. Um, and so maybe we need to start learning and reflecting on that history. So like I said, there's a lot of it. There's a couple moments and things that I think really resonate right now as far as histories of anti-Asian violence that kind of open up this conversation. Um, and really one of the things that I've pointed out to people when I've been having these conversations is that essentially from the beginning of immigration uh, to America of Asian populations immigrating to the US, there is violence. So the first Asian people to immigrate to the US are Chinese people and around 1850. And by 1871, there's a mass lynching in Los Angeles um, where the entire Chinese community is targeted. So barely 20 years and you're already seeing this kind of mass violence. Um, when we look at topics that today have a lot of vitriol around them, for example, immigration policies, um, that started with the first major exclusionary immigration policy in the US, which targeted Chinese people, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Um, at the time, Chinese immigration had increased and white workers really began to complain about their jobs being taken, but they also made this argument that the US was losing its racial purity. Um, and to really quell these concerns, the federal government implemented the Chinese Exclusion Act, which stopped the immigration of Chinese people to the US for 10 years. And it also made it impossible to be Chinese and to become a naturalized citizen. Um, and of course, you know, when federal policy like this gets implemented. There's also a string of what I would call these kind of daily dehumanizations. So um, there was, you know, Chinese people were forced to carry immigration cards. They had to provide those cards as proof whenever they were asked. Um, and more serious violence followed. There was more lynchings, more attacks, because these federal policies really, you know, undergird this belief that somehow these people don't belong here. Um, and I think one of the histories that many people would be more familiar with and which the project also touches on in some of our newest blog posts um, is uh, the Japanese internment. So in December of 1941, uh, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and it really sent the US barreling into World War II. Um, and this created a real sense of unity among American citizens and particularly white Americans. Um, you know, nothing really binds you together like a shared enemy. Um, and it also really made all of the ways that Japanese people in the U.S. were already excluded, were already othered, it made that much more visible. And so Japanese people began very quickly to be treated like aliens, to be treated like outsiders. And in popular culture at this period, you really see them being represented as so foreign, so different that they could never truly be American. And therefore, they warrant suspicion. Um, and within hours of the bombing, Japanese community leaders were arrested. People's homes were being searched. Um, nearly immediately, California California, Washington, and Oregon were designated military zones, um, and Japanese people were told that they weren't allowed to travel without express authorization from the federal government. Um, and by March of 1942, the U.S. government was doing forced evacuations. Um, so more than 120,000 adults and children had 
to leave whatever property they couldn't carry and they were forcibly relocated. Um, first, they were imprisoned in these kind of large assembly centers um, and then into hastily built internment camps, mainly um, all across remote areas in the American West. Um, and just to be very clear, American born citizens made up two thirds of those who were interned. So this was not about American citizenship. This was about who the American government deemed to be American enough, right? Um, and this, you know, when I talk about this, sometimes people say, well, that stuff happened a really long time ago. So, you know, what about something more recently? Obviously what you mentioned was very recent, but there's a long history of this in the eighties and nineties as well. Um, so if you've never heard of the murder of Vincent Chin in 1982 in Detroit, that was really a galvanizing moment to again, talk about anti-Asian violence. Um, Chin was attacked by two white men who believed that he was Japanese. Um, the men who were both auto workers, they beat him to death while they yelled racial slurs at him. And they said something along the lines of, you all are the reason we're out of work, kind of referencing this increase in foreign made cars. Um, the men were put on trial. They were fined $3,000 each and they served zero jail time. And I think it really opened up this conversation about um, different forms of punishments, but also about this kind of racial animosity that's hidden beneath the surface. Um, and I could name like a hundred other instances that really come to mind, but I think there's kind of two things to take away from some of these stories. One, the U.S. has a long history of blaming outsiders for our problems. So we work to kind of figure out who's a group of people that we can blame for these issues, and then we blame them. Um, and this happened to other groups that we now consider white. Um, so if you look at the history of Italian people or Irish people, similar issues will be brought to light. Um, but the basis of it is this idea of these people being othered. They they are something else. Um, they are outside. Um, they are not part of the in-group. Um, and all of these incidents, I think, really speak to this continual history of othering Asian people as not American or not part of this dominant group. And so therefore, they're outsiders. You know, you see these narratives like they're taking your jobs or they're ruining American culture. Um, of course, this isn't true. Of course, it's not right. Um, it's really a distraction technique. Um, I think this is clear too. For example, many people listening may know that um, Chinese people were responsible for building the railroads in America that spanned across the whole country that opened up the American West. Um, and the reason that Chinese people were hired to build the railroad in the 1860s is because white men weren't applying in the numbers that were necessary to build the railroad. But also it was because railroad companies knew that they could pay Chinese people less and they could work them harder. And so who's really at fault in that story, right? Who's at fault in that history? Um, the other thing I think undergirding all of this is this idea of assimilation. Um, so in our article about Japanese internment, we talk a lot about how Japanese people work to assimilate into American culture. And the idea of assimilating has a long, long history in the US. Um, something that many listeners may know of is, you know, assimilation is the basis for indigenous boarding schools, which took Native American men, um, forced these young children really into these boarding schools to try and Americanize them. Um, and the issue with this framing and the kind of bounds of assimilation is that they're always changing, right? What is American enough? 
How do you show that you've assimilated? This is a moving target. It's nearly impossible to reach because the whole idea behind assimilation is white supremacy. You're asking people to assimilate to a white supremacist view of the world. Um, you're asking them to buy into a ranking of appropriate races and cultures. Um, and so it's really a corrupt idea from the beginning. Japanese people can never truly fully assimilate because they're not white. The parameter of assimilation is whiteness. Um, so in the process of trying to assimilate, um, um, Asian people are further racialized, they're further othered, they're pointed out continually over and over again as the other. And it's really a corrupt concept and one I think that forms the basis of so much of this dehumanization. And really it's what enables more violence. So you've given us this history of Asian American prejudice and American political culture and just this history of scapegoating, but how has current rhetoric triggered scapegoating now and especially in the early months of the pandemic? So I think what's always interesting when these incidents happen, right, um, I think we could point to any number of things, for example, you know, the coronavirus being referred to as the China virus. Um, when these things happen, we always hear this immediate outrage response, right? So elected officials or university administrators will say something like, well, this isn't us, or hate has no home here. But I think if you ask Asian people, um, or if you ask Asian people in Wisconsin or at UW, they would tell you that hate has always had a home here. They have stories to tell about being discriminated against, about feeling that hate, about living with that hate every day. Um, and sometimes I think that hate takes many different forms, right? So sometimes that's racial slurs being chalked on campus, right? Sometimes it's these kinds of microaggressions. Um, so, you know, being asked questions like, where are you from? And do you speak English, even though you're clearly speaking English? Um, and when you have someone who's in power, like, for example, Trump, you know, the literal president of the United States saying these things, it gives a lot of credence to these ideas, right? It gives voice to these ideas, it platforms them, it makes them seem acceptable, um, and they spread because people keep hearing it over and over again. Um, and the problem with racism, I think, more broadly in our society is that it's a constant. It's always bubbling right underneath the surface, but we trick ourselves into thinking that it's been solved or that we live in a post-racial society but that's never true. Um, and until we really own up to that fact, we're going to continue to see this kind of violence and hate spread, right? And there will be moments where it goes away. There will be moments where reactionary people like Trump aren't spewing some of this garbage and it's not part of the main consciousness of our conversation. And it will feel as though it's gone away, but it will still be there until we have this honest reckoning with racism. And that's what makes it, I think, scary and dangerous, right? Because you think that it's solved for a little bit until it comes bubbling back up to the surface. It, it, it feels so frustrating, though, because you're right. A lot of this is emboldened and brought to the surface from where it's bubbling right under by elite actors who have this kind of platform to reinvigorate this messaging. But then it seems like there's not a lot we can do to stop that. Because you're right, I mean, there's there's probably almost always going to be someone like Donald Trump or other racist, bigoted figures who have some kind of platform. So as, you know, I, I won't go ahead and assume that 1050 Bascom has the listenership to consider myself a media elite myself, but for us non-media elites, what, is there anything we can do to, like, counter that or 
push back against that messaging when it seems like it's coming from people with such like a dominant and widespread unstoppable ability to profligate ideas? Yeah, I think we get this question all the time, right? It's like people who do see this and hear this rhetoric and are appalled by it are like, what can I do? This is terrible. I don't believe these things. I don't want this person representing me or thinking that this person represents me. Um, so there's a couple of things. One, you as an individual like will not solve all of racism. <laughs> um, it is a large system. There are people in power who have a vested interest in keeping that system, but we can work against it, right? And so... Um, part of it, I think, is really having as particularly as white people having conversations with other white people, um, and that can be really uncomfortable. So sometimes that takes the form of families, right? Um, so like I've had a conversation like this recently with a family member who had like read some really not credible source on Facebook that was trying to spread this myth about the Chinese government like harvesting DNA. And I was like, that's not true. And here are all these sources. And luckily this family member was like, thank you for sending me sources. I didn't even know this wasn't accurate. But having those conversations, opening that door to be able to disprove and work against some of those things, and then talking about why those ideas are harmful, that's a step. And so I often ask people to think about their sphere of influence, right? And so your sphere of influence is something that can be pretty set. So at work, for example, there are people that maybe you supervise or maybe you enact, re you know, enact with every day, interact with every day. Um, and you may hear them say something inappropriate or offensive. Hop in, say, why are you saying that? Or I think you have that information wrong. Here's some other sources. Um, talk to your family members. But also if you see this type of anti-Asian violence when you're out in a grocery store, if you're out waiting at a bus stop, you need to intervene. And I think that particularly in the Midwest, people are really uncomfortable with interacting with strangers and intervening in these ways. Um, but one of the most disheartening things I think about seeing a lot of this anti-Asian violence was seeing bystanders, was seeing people who didn't want to get involved when like an Asian grandmother was being beat up. Like we need to get a little more uncomfortable, not only in intervening in these situations, but intervening when we hear racism, when we see racism, whether that's violence or whether that's microaggressions. Um, I also think we need to do better in listening, right? Because anybody who is Asian will tell you that this has been going on for hundreds of years. And all of a sudden, when there's these instances, it becomes important to white people. And it needs to be important all the time. And we need to listen to people when they say, this is rising, right? Um, because the conversation about rising anti-Asian violence started a while ago. And all of a sudden, it's just now kind of reached the zenith in the popular culture. Um, so I think that those are like some things that people can do that don't, they won't solve racism in and of themselves, but they actively work against it. Um, and I think it's so important to remind people that anti-racism is like a lifelong practice. This is something that you're going to be doing forever. Um, we most likely will not see racism solved in our lifetime. That can be defeating for some people. Um, I struggle with that often thinking in that kind of defeatist mindset, but I also just try and remember that you have to try, right? And it's a kind of a constant work and a constant practice. While we're on the topic of intervention, there seems to be a hesitancy from many people who are generally well-meaning and try to practice anti-racism, who feel uncomfortable or scared to step in in an escalated situation because they're afraid of being hurt themselves. What is your take on that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, intervening when you feel it's appropriate or when you feel safe, but like so many of the instances that we saw on video were like people who clearly had power and, or, you know, like the, I don't know if you all saw the video of like a security guard saw somebody being attacked and just like closed the door. And I was like, Whoa, (laughs) you are a security guard. (laughs) You are trained for these type of interventions. Um, you know, getting somebody else too. So, you know, if you see somebody, there are little ways you can intervene too that I think feel safer, right? Um, that aren't necessarily confrontational. Um, so I know that one of the trainings that I took about intervention, for example, was at on public transit, is when you see somebody being harassed, just sit next to them and start a conversation with them to distract from this person yelling racial slurs at them. Say, hey, um, my name's Casey, how are you doing? Um, I'm really sorry this person's yelling at you. Do you wanna talk about something else? Do you wanna move to another car? You know, there are ways you can do it interpersonally that maybe don't feel as though you're putting yourself out there and even like pulling that person aside afterwards and saying, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. I, I was scared to intervene, but I want you to know that I, I find what they said to be horrific. Is there anything I can do for you? Can I call someone, you know, like little acts of, I think, human kindness that don't put your safety at risk, but still let people in your community know that you, you aren't going to stand for this, even as an individual, that you don't hold these beliefs. Because I think one of the problems with these outright instances of violence and attacks is that they're very isolating, right? Um, Because you know that this person is one person who doesn't represent the whole, but at the same time, like you're targeted, you're othered, you're singled out. And so it's a really isolating experience. I think it's interesting that they offer training specifically on transit experiences, but that's actually kind of really cool. That's probably just because I lived in Minneapolis for the longest time um, and there's mass transit in a way that's like much more regular. Um, but yeah, I, I got the opportunity to take intervention training and one of them was one of the classes modules was specifically for transit intervention um, and like how you do it if you're on the light rail um, and all these things. But it was really helpful for me because you see these things or on video, right? We're seeing a lot more videos of them. And you're always like, I know how I would react in that situation, but you don't until you're in the situation. And I feel like now that I've been thought through what I would do or what's possible to do when that situation presents itself to me, I'll know what to do instead of having to think about it in the moment. Um, and I'm sure like, if you Google some of those like intervention trainings, I bet they have a bunch online too. Um, it was a great opportunity and something I think really important for me to start thinking about how like the little interactions that you have can do a lot to kind of protect people. Um, and I think we're only going to continue to see this type of escalation and whether it's like outright violence and gun violence or whether it's the daily kind of dehumanizations that's where I think we can have a big impact um particularly at the university too microaggressions I see microaggressions quite a bit at UW in meetings and at events and really just starting to call that out and say hey what you just said is actually problematic. And here's why, um, we can kind of shift the conversation, I think, or shift the environment. And going off of those specific instances, let's talk about explicit anti-Asian American sentiments we've seen on campus. You probably discussed it behind scenes at your role as a historian, um, and as part of the public history project, and we're going to get into your new research, um, and blog posts, but maybe share with us how you and your team and collaborators were thinking about tackling these important issues on campus and any data you might have seen regarding these experiences. 
Yeah. So a little over a year ago, we were asked by the APITA Student Center, which is the Asian Pacific Islander Desi American Student Center. So I'll just refer to it as APITA from here on out. The APITA Student Center asked me to come and speak to their group about APITA Heritage Month last year in 2020 um, and about our research. And they were hoping to do a physical exhibit on the history of Asian and Asian American people at UW. Um, And this was pre-pandemic. So the exhibit didn't end up happening in the same way that we had hoped. Um, And I'll be honest, they showed up to this meeting with them pretty empty handed, right? We didn't have any research completed yet on Asian and Asian American history. There wasn't a ton of research that was already published on. um, And I was just hiring students to start to do this research. And so instead what I've said was, what do you want us to research, right? And I will make sure that it happens. Um, And so that's what we did. I hired two students to research the history of Asian and Asian American students. Both students took really a different perspective to covering this history. One student focused on oral histories and the other on archival research. So we have these different sets of research coming out that I think complement each other well, which is here's what the archival record tells us. Here are some of the larger contexts that are important to understanding this history. And also here are the experiences. Here's what people are going through every day. Here's what they're feeling. Here's what the archival record can't tell us. And I'll add that this research was very difficult for us. Um, There is not a box in the archive that's labeled Asian American history at UW. Um, There isn't a collection that just says Asian history at UW. Um, And so you really have to poke around to find it or you have to know what you're looking for. So my student who did archival research just started by looking in the Daily Cardinal around the time periods when we knew that Asian people would have been at UW or we knew that Asian people would have been the focus of conversation at UW or in the country. So for example, World War II, we knew that Japanese students would have been being talked about on campus after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. Um, And so that's where these stories really begin to like kind of poke their way out for us. But it was hard for that reason. We would open a Daily Cardinal and we didn't know if we were going to find anything. Um, And so part of, I think, the power of doing a project like this is now we at least have something and we have avenues we know we want to explore further. Um, But you really have to have the time and the money to be able to hunt down these stories that aren't always in a logical place or that aren't always documented and gathered in a way that's easy to find. And speaking of which, and to cover just, you know, a little bit of background, you mentioned that you're working with um, APITA for this project, uh, as p- and it's meant to be part of April's APITA American Islander Heritage Month here at UW. Um, can you just uh, tell us a little bit more about the organization and some of its goals and missions, and also kind of what it means to be a member of the APITA community? Yeah, so... You know, the APITA Student Center was one that was established. It hasn't been around that long. It's only been around for a couple of years. Um, but there have always been Asian student groups on campus, right? And some of them have been, you know, for example, there's been a Hmong student group on campus for decades. Um, but the APITA Student Center is located in the Multicultural Student Center, and it really has the express purpose of creating a community space for APITA students, for giving them a space. And I won't speak for anybody who's like a part of the community and what it feels like, but I will say that in talking with students of the group, I think what's really powerful is that they're really forming a coalition of students who have many different experiences, and they really have a broad and diverse understanding of what it means to be Asian American in the U.S. and also what it means to be Asian American on campus. 
UW has a really long history of having Asian and Asian American students present and contributing to our campus community, but often these communities get flattened, right, as just Asian and not really seeing all the diversity and breadth of experience that comes within the Asian umbrella. These experiences are not uniform by any sense, um, and they continue to be unique. So I think what's great about the Student Center and about Tev Lee, who is actually the director of the Student Center, is that he's really created this space where students can come and connect with one another and really bring these unique experiences and find that community in spite of all of their differences. And so it's been an absolute pleasure to work with them and to be able to actually provide this historical research, right? It's always frustrating as somebody who wants to serve the campus community and who takes that mission really seriously to come empty handed and say, I'm sorry, we have nothing for you. And now it was such an honor to be able to come and say, look at all this history that we found. We're so excited to share it and to help promote a PETA Heritage Month. Let's move on to the actual public history projects, recent blog posts. Let's start with the University of Wisconsin and Japanese American studies from 1941 to 1944 written by Joy Block. Can you tell us about this research and what your team learned and maybe what we can all take away from this research? Yes, I think this piece by Joy Block is absolutely fantastic. It opens up so many important lines of conversation about the experiences of Asian and Asian American people at UW across time um, and really just about how do we not know this history before, right? That's one of the things I just keep reflecting on. It's such a rich story. So Joy really started this research, like I said, by looking into the Daily Cardinal. She had originally set out to study the experiences of Southeast Asian students, um, and that's really her specialty. But instead, she stumbled into this really rich story about Japanese students on campus. Um, and I think the article does a few important things. So first, I think it really shows the struggle that students often face to assimilate into the campus community and really to assimilate um, in the face or being forced to assimilate because of this assimilationist politics in the US. This effort to kind of prove how American you can be was really damaging. And even if, you know, even if Japanese students felt like they reached that place or that they'd done that work, there were always these racist individuals who kind of popped up to remind them that they weren't meeting this impossible standard. Um, and really, I think the story shows that these assimilationist politics do transfer to the university, right? And that as students try to find their place on campus, they're met with some of these same ideas about assimilation that are present in the culture. And I think, you know, in this story, we are meeting Japanese students as they are fighting to come to the university. And we're also seeing how the university is responding to that. And one of the things that really stood out to me in the story is how big of an impact that individuals could make on the experience of Japanese students. Individual professors and coaches often come out as the real heroes of inclusion in these stories. They leverage their power, they make phone calls, they put their own careers and reputations on the line to make sure that students are safe and that students have access to these classes. And so one of the takeaways I hope that people see is like, if you have power, if you feel like there's a letter you can send, a call you can make to advocate for a student, do it. Um, because many of these students came out and said, the only reason I got an education was because so-and-so vouched for me. Um, and lastly, you know, I think it really illuminates a kind of core contention at the university, which is that UW is a liberal place. Um, it's a diverse place, or at least it wants to believe that, but its commitment to these ideals are constantly being challenged. And that surely happened in this story. 
UW behind the scenes was really advocating for Japanese students to be able to attend the university, but they struggled to advocate hard enough uh, because they wanted to continue receiving wartime funds from the federal government. And so it placed them in this awkward position where they knew to live up to this liberal idea of accepting everybody, of giving everyone an education. They had to get Japanese students here. And at the same time, they wanted this money. And so they couldn't really push hard enough or as hard as they wanted to. Um, and it really asks us to consider how far is far enough, right? Is UW really going far enough to advocate for these ideals? Um, and, you know, on that same topic, I think it shows the immense power that higher education institutions have in the culture at large. When UW gets on the list of approved universities that can start admitting students, many others follow suit. Um, and so often some of our most powerful institutions not only have a sway in higher education, um, but they have a sway in the culture at large, right, in setting ideals and putting these ideals out there and acting as models for how other people should do it. And so for a story that's really just about how do we get Japanese students out of internment and into school, it opens up all these other kind of flowing conversations that I think are important for us to consider today. Well, speaking of which, I feel like that kind of naturally leads into the second article that's come out regarding this project. Japanese American Badgers, which was also written by Joy Block. Can you just start off by telling us a little bit about this research and writing as it kind of chronicles the history of Asian American organizations on campus, uh, beginning in the 1940s, but also the, as you were kind of mentioning at the end there, fascinating stories of individual Asian Americans on campus during World War II? Yeah, so speaking like for myself and for Joy here, um, this was one of the most fun topics to research. We don't often get to access this type of detailed stories about individuals. And in this case, we just happened to find these really rich stories that we could access. Um, and it really all started with one of the individuals who is chronicled in our Japanese American Badgers post, Akio Kanoshima. Um, Joy found this article about Akio in the Daily Cardinal and just went down this rabbit hole. And we found this incredible story about this man coming to UW um, and really going on to lead this equally rich life outside of UW. But his time, I think, at UW was really demonstrative of some of the issues that were plaguing Japanese students at the time. Um, so I'll start by just telling you a little bit about Akio because he's kind of become like one of my favorite figures in researching all of this history. He really sticks out as this incredible person. You know, Joy found this article about him and it's about his boxing career at UW. So we started by reaching out to some sports historians and nobody knew of him. And we were like, wait a minute, there's all these articles about him. How does nobody know about him? So we start Googling around and we found that he wrote a book filled with short stories about his life. And so we have this amazing primary document that he wrote. So we had that. And then Joy had hoped to reach out and speak to Akio. Unfortunately, he passed away last year. We barely missed getting his story. And that was super defeating for us. So instead, what we tried to do was tell the most complete story that we could about him. So Akio spent the years of 1942 and 1943 working in an internment camp trying to get into colleges. Um, he was finally able to attend a few different colleges before he was accepted to UW in 1944 to study journalism. Um, he arrived at UW, began taking classes. He was working on campus in the dorm cafeteria, and he also worked at the Oscar Mayer plant. 
And that's when he heard that the boxing team was looking for people to join. And he had heard that there could be scholarships attached. And so maybe he wouldn't have to work so many jobs outside of attending school. He had done a little sparring as a teenager. He was really hoping to get this scholarship. So he thought he'd try out and, you know, worst comes to worst, he, he won't make the team. He'll just keep working. Well, it turns out he was a great boxer. <laughs> he was a fantastic boxer. In his memoirs and in his interviews, he says that he doesn't think he was actually that good, that he thinks he was only good because some of the best people on the team were serving in the military at the time. But everything about his record seems to show that he was good. Um, after his first season, he had the best record on the team, only one loss. And even that loss was highly contested. The referee at Penn State had previously said prior to the match that, quote, he wasn't going to let any Jap boy win. So when Kenoshima lost the match, um, all the students on campus and the coaches considered it a really lousy decision. UW's coach at the time, Tom Keneally, told the press that he had been robbed. And it was really after this controversy that Akio became this campus sensation. He continued to rack up wins for the boxing team. He eventually became the captain. Um, and he has really fond memories of, of being able to find this community within the boxing team. He graduated from UW. He went on to become a journalist in Japan, London, and in the United States, traveled all over the world, ended up serving in the Korean War um, before he retired. And finding this story was just this kind of window into what these experiences could be like, but also into like these unsung heroes, right? These people at UW, these alumni that we don't often get to highlight and see. An absolutely fascinating story. I mean, I'm, I agree. I'm glad that, you know, we have that now in terms of that being documented as a, as a matter of both just campus and, and general history. I'm very glad to hear that the work has been done now so that we do have it and we don't lose it. So, I mean, thank you for that. But then to kind of take us up to the present, now that, you know, both just considering your training as a historian and also specifically your work on this project, what stories that might be happening now or even that you're collecting now might help future historians look back on campus in trying to figure out and tell about the Asian American experience for individuals on campus right now? Or in other words, how should we be thinking about collecting and preserving stories from campus right now as a public historian? Yes, that's a great question and something I worry about all the time. Um, there are many reasons why this period will be hard for historians in the future. One of the primary reasons being the internet, uh, the existence of the internet and social media. It seems like it would make it easier to document, but makes it harder for us to document and store a lot of this material. So we think about this all the time. Um, also, you know, when you think about archives at UW and, and, and other institutional archives, the best preserved records are representative of people who have the money and the time to organize their records. So chancellor records, administrative records, dean of students records, those ones are the best. What is not the best preserved is student records, student organizing records, student group records, because students turn over every four to six years. Um, they often don't think about keeping a history. Often people are not taught to think of themselves as holders of historical knowledge. And so lots of student organizing materials don't end up making it into the archive. And so this is something that kind of plagues us. So we have one more article coming out for Apita Heritage Month. It comes out on April 26th. 
and it is actually um, an article about a Hmong oral history project that we have a student working on. Chong Mua has been working on this Hmong oral history project for the past year. And it started with, we reached out to the Alumni Association and they sent us a list of all the Asian alumni that they had. And then Chong narrowed it down based on who had Hmong surnames and reached out to them and said, do you want to talk to us about your experience? And so now we have this rich collection of Hmong alumni histories and oral histories. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with the Hmong history, Hmong people arrived um, in Wisconsin in large numbers in the late 70s and early 80s. So a lot of these people are still alive. A lot of them still live in the community. And a lot of them remember their time at UW very well, right? Um, and so this is a story that we probably should have been documenting sooner than this, but we're happy that we had the opportunity to do that and to add to this collection. Um, and so it's projects and efforts like that of getting these stories documented, of realizing that there's a story we haven't told and then working to go get it. The other thing that we started doing is we have, you know, undergrads and graduate students who work for the project. And sometimes they want to just do archival research, right? They just want to look at the past. They just want to be in the archives. But a lot of particularly their undergrad students like talking to other students and doing interviews. Um, and so over the summer, we have more undergraduates who have been hired to work for the project. Um, and one of our recent efforts has been to try and document student organizing happening right now. The thing is with studying the history of right now is that you can't historicize it in the way that we can historicize something from 50 years ago, right? We don't know what's going to happen next week. We don't know what the broad trends of this history will be, but you can document it so that other people can historicize it in the future. And you can take something that's happening right now and link it to the past and show this through line for people. And so a big part of our project has been documenting student experience right now on campus, how students are organizing, how they're thinking, how they're responding to the pandemic, how their classes are going. Um, and so often the most, I think, radical work that we do, right, the work that I think will have the most impact may not be hyper historical right now, but in 50 years, I think it will matter. It will be the thing where someone says, it's great that we have this, right? It's great that we have this collection of people talking about COVID. It's great that we have this collection of students who are talking about organizing in a post-George Floyd world. Um, and so that's one of the ways that we do it. Um, but we're always going to miss stories. This is, I think, like one of the hardest things that you come to realize working as a historian. We can never truly know everything about the past. Um, the way that historical records are collected favor certain narratives and certain people's perspective over others. And so you have to work very um, purposefully and very diligently to try and collect these stories when you can, otherwise we'll lose them. What would you say your advice is for students, staff, faculty, or other members of the community that hope to further participate and even share the public history project? Yes. So one of the things I tell students all the time is that generally you have final projects where you can research whatever you want, right? They're just like, okay, write a paper about the history of something or, um, you know, you have to write a history about this topic. So let's say you have to write a history about politics. Um, great. Have you thought about writing a history paper about something that has to do with UW-Madison? Um, so I often go to classes and make this pitch. We have an archive here. You don't have to travel. You can get all the materials you need. 
right in the library. If you're researching in the summer, it's air conditioned. Um, there is perks and benefits to researching your own community. You know it better than anyone else because you live here, you participate in it, you'll see things that other people don't see who would be outsiders researching this. Um, so I encourage students to do that, to really reflect on their own histories or topics that are interesting to them, and then to contribute those to the project. So we've had lots of students send us their research papers and say, hey, I did a research paper on the history of feminist protests at UW. Here's what I found. Um, and then we cite those students in our work. Um, and we we promote them and say, look at this cool history that this student uncovered. So that's one way I think for students, for faculty and for staff um, and for anybody really in the community, we obviously ask them to share our blog posts widely. Like if you have a newsletter and you were really taken aback by these stories of Japanese American badgers, please link this out to people. We love getting this information out there and shared. We also, the Public History Project is happy to come present in your faculty meetings and department meetings. Um, we actually do custom presentations for departments about their specific histories so that they can start to grapple with their own histories in their own units and departments. Um, and really just talk about these issues, right? Like if you use our articles, our blog posts as a way to open up this conversation, even whether that's in your classrooms, in your department meetings, at the dinner table with your family members, that's the point of the project. We hope that people use our research in a way that's useful for them, in a way that continues a conversation that is vitally important right now. As we're kind of starting to come up on our time here today, we want to make sure that we ask you, what should we have asked you? Is there anything that you feel like we didn't talk about in our conversation that our listeners need to hear to really understand this project or its work or the situation that we're in right now, or just anything else that you really feel like our listeners need to hear. Wow. One of the things I would say, something that I think about a lot, um, and you know, some of the kind of context that we've talked about today is when this violence happened in Atlanta, people, the immediate reaction is, shock, right? It's like horror, it's shock. And I heard a lot of white family members, white friends, white colleagues say, I'm just, I'm shocked that this would happen, that, you know, how is this happening? Why is it being targeted against this population of people? Um, there's always an answer to that question. And the answer is racism and there's a history of it. And so one of my goals as a public historian is to make that history accessible, but also when things like this happen, Google it. Google anti-Asian history and you will get hundreds and thousands of hits, right? Um, or police violence history. You will get lots of historical answers that really, that answer these questions that you have. Um, and for our campus community, it's the same. We're trying to be that resource. So when something happens on campus, we can say, actually, you know, there has been a long history of that, or it's really interesting, you know, here's what we know about that history. Um, History, I think, does a couple important things that people don't often recognize. One, it's always changing and it's always adjusting and it's we're always reevaluating our previous historical trends. So you have to keep up on it. You have to keep reading about history. That's part of the game. Um, but the other thing it does, I think, is it can uh, good history will make you uncomfortable. It will make you question your beliefs. It will make you question what your ideals. It will make you question what you thought you knew. 
but good history can also really be a balm for the soul. Um, and I believe that good history, even if it hurts us, even if it makes us uncomfortable, it also lets us know that we're not the first people who have faced this problem. We're not the first people who fought against these problems. We're not the first people who tried to think creatively about how to solve these problems. Um, and so often history can hold a lot of answers for us as well. Um, but I think it takes that deep engagement with this history to make those changes. Anytime somebody is pitching you a policy or a proposal that has no historical basis, that's a bad policy. That is a bad proposal. Um, the answer always lies in the history in some way. Um, and so that's what we try and do. We want to make that history accessible. But also if it's something that, you know, maybe doesn't relate to our campus community is something you see in the news, there's a history for it. And I really encourage people to start kind of dipping their toe into reading about these histories and understanding them. Um, and obviously, you know, I will plug, please follow our project. Um, we publish blog posts about every two to three weeks when school is in session. Um, so you can find our blogs at publichistoryproject.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Instagram where we post all year round. It's at UW Public History Project. And for those of you who say, I don't know if I want to follow this heavy history on my Instagram account. We also post light stuff and silly stuff and weird things that we find in the archive. We try and make our Instagram a place where we can share a bunch of additional information about how we do our work, but also we find some very silly things in the archives and things that make historical work seem more fun than what our project maybe looks like from the outside. Um, and yeah, I think that's all I would say. <laughs> One last thing. It's been a long, dark, kind of weird year coming up on maybe a year and a half. Who knows? Hopefully not. Um, but what is one thing that you're hopeful about? Ooh, I'm hopeful to see people having conversations that make them uncomfortable. I think in the past year, we've been forced to have a lot of uncomfortable conversations, whether that's in a small scale or a large scale. People have been confronted with ideas that are uncomfortable for them. And I think you can look at any, any plethora of examples. When COVID first happened, I think a lot of people were confronted with the idea that a lot of us live different lives, markedly different lives when it comes to where we work, how we're valued in society, um, how much money we have. I think when police violence became the center um, of our conversation this summer, a lot of people were confronted with new ideas about the role of policing in our communities. Now, as we go through this kind of anti-Asian violence, I think a lot of people are confronted with racism again and with the kind of violent outcomes of racist thought. Um, and so I'm hopeful to see that these conversations are happening and that people are starting to dig in and have the uncomfortable conversations. And I hope that that continues. I would love to share a quote with you all um, by Miriam Kaba, who is a revolutionary uh, prison uh, abolitionist. She says, hope is a discipline. And I have that quote hanging above my desk. Um, I have it in my office. I have it in my house. Um, I have it hanging above my mirror. Um, hope is a discipline. Some days it is hard to hope. Um, and so hope is a discipline. It takes time. You have to discipline yourself to feel that hope, to believe that hope. You also have to know that you may not see the fruits of your labor in your lifetime, but that doesn't mean that work isn't valuable or necessary. So I just, everywhere in my life, I have hope as a discipline because I remind myself that it's something you have to practice. In incredible advice. A good quote to hang in all those places, I think. Thank you so much for your time. Again, this has been wonderful. 
For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now.